From the highest mountains to the bluest seas, the driest deserts to the icy poles, Kate Turkington has traveled there. And now she's inviting you to travel with her through your radio. Travels with Kate is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Cape Union Mart. Kindle your spirit of adventure. The adventure starts here. Only on 101.9 High FM. Adventure. It's not some rare gene inherited by a few people. It's that human instinct to escape, explore and discover new places and experience new things. That's why at Cape Union Mart, we strive to awaken this adventurous spirit. Because the best gifts are not things, but moments you create with people who matter. Every adventure starts with Cape Union Mart, with gifts like Salomon, the North Face and K-Way Adventure Gear. Cape Union Mart, the adventure starts here. 101.9, Hi FM, it's Cape Turkington, and we're talking travel. Actually, we're going to be talking... A little bit of other things too, uh, because one of my guests this week, or my guest this week, is Professor Anton Harbour, Head of Journalism at Fitz. And although I'm going to ask him about his favourite travel places, I would want to ask him, and I'm sure you'd want me to ask him too, what's the state of journalism in South Africa. So I'm going to slip that in at some stage. And then, of course, later on, we'll be talking books. But let me tell you what we're going to talk about first of all, what country you're going to visit with me. We're going to Botswana, particularly, I think, the Okavango Delta. And I know you know Botswana's our neighbour, but I just want to remind you of a few things. It's only over... Mm -hmm. 60, 70 years ago, Botswana was the Cinderella of Africa. The country had no money. It was desperately poor. What happened? Do you know what happened? I'm sure you do. They discovered diamonds. And now they have the richest diamond mine in the world and they have the largest open pit diamond mine in the world. But that's only happened in 1967, so you do, you do uh, the math. So one of the richest countries in Africa now, one of the most stable, and it's always been held up as a beacon of democracy ever since its first president, Sussurezi Kama, uh, took office. So Botswana's independence, really, it brought... Uh, how can I describe it? It brought a kind of tide of optimism to the country and it sidestepped lots of tribal issues and factional fighting that maybe happened elsewhere in the continent because, of course, now they had money. And the Botswana people pride themselves on being a peaceful nation. That's their brand. They say we are peaceful. And any of you who've read... Um, the books about the f number one ladies detective uh, agency in Botswana I talked about one a few weeks ago, that gentle pace of life. And even now, with a very thriving business sector, it's still a very gentle, gentle place uh, to visit. So lots to talk about, loads of places to 
go in Botswana from the Kalahari to the Okavango to the Mahadi Hadi Plains, you can go there, Pan rather, you can go uh, in your own vehicle, you can go on a trip, you can take a tour, uh, whatever. I'm going to tell you about some of the places you uh, can go to. And just to tell you, Botswana is very passionate about conservation. They have a very, very good, so far, conservation record. I mean, it was once a hunting mecca. I mean, think Ernest Hemingway. But, I mean, hunting still goes on, controlled hunting still goes on, as it does in um, South Africa. But there are proclaimed hunting areas, as uh, here. And Botswana's tourism method or policy, if you like, has always been low-impact, high-cost tourism. So it's not a cheap place to go to, even if you go in your own car. And just last thing I'll tell you, although I'll be telling you more after the break, 18% of the country's total land area is proclaimed for conservation and tourism, which is a pretty good record because it's a big country. Uh, Botswana's the size of roughly, I'm not a mathematician or an actuary, Botswana's roughly the size of France or Texas. It's a very, very uh, big country. Okay, more after the break. From the highest mountains to the bluest seas, the driest deserts to the icy poles, Kate Turkington has traveled there. And now she's inviting you to travel with her through your radio. Travels with Kate is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Cape Union Mart. Kindle your spirit of adventure. The adventure starts here. Only on 101.9 High FM. Adventure. It's not some rare gene inherited by a few people. It's that human instinct to escape, explore, and discover new places and experience new things. That's why at Cape Union Mart, we strive to awaken this adventurous spirit. Because the best gifts are not things, but moments you create with people who matter. Every adventure starts with Cape Union Mart, with gifts like Salomon, the North Face, and K-Way Adventure Gear. Cape Union Mart, the adventure starts here. Welcome back, talking about Botswana. And just before I talk about the Okavango in more detail, let me give you a kind of overview of places you could go to if you went to uh, Botswana. I mean, you've got the great rivers in Botswana. You've got the Chobe, you've got the Linyanti in the north, you've got the Kwando River. And they're teeming, the places are teeming with herds of elephant, packs of a uh, wild dog. You've got the Savuti Channel. Now that channel, very mysterious, lots of legends and sort of mysterious sort stories about the Savuti Channel. And it was dry for years. And I think, I'm not quite sure when it ran. I was there actually when it first ran, which must have been a few years ago, but it's been flowing ever since. So it's an absolute mecca for Water birds and the Savuti plains all round the Savuti channels, golden, golden plains, huge prides of lions, like 
Blind Pride 35 strong that have to take down a giraffe at least once a day to feed, uh, to feed all of them. And then you've got the McCarty Cardi pans, which I think, and I've been to Arizona, I've been to some of those, I've been to the Atacama, I can never say that word, the Atacama Desert in, uh, Chile. I've been to many, many dry places, but I think the McCarty County pans in Botswana are the nearest thing on earth to the surface of the moon. And once I did a trip, I was staying at Jack's camp in the McCarty County uh, plains, and then did a quad bike ride to a very wonderful, strange island called Kubu Island. And maybe some of you listening have been there. It's like something out of a, not a horror movie, but a fantasy, maybe Lord of the Rings. Um, it's an island that was once in the middle of this vast sea because the Mkartikati pans, of course, were once a huge, huge inland lake which dried up and it's now salt pans. And yet this island, tiny island called Kubu Island, exists still in the middle of these vast salt pans. And the baobab trees... Because of the climate and the dryness and the whole geological thing have twisted, they're almost like giant bonsai trees. Does that sound, that's a bit of a, uh, a mixed metaphor in a way, but they've got that funny, twisted, cramped, squat look and they're red and they're bare branches and their strange stones and strange drawings on the rocks. Yes, Lord of the Rings, it would fit beautifully into one of the Lord of the Rings uh, books. And we we went there, we went by um, quad bike. I'm never, ever going on a quad bike again. I have done it many times, but five years ago I fell off a quad bike in the middle of the Namib Desert and fractured five ribs, and you won't get me near, <laughs> you won't get me near a quad bike. But this was before that happened. Magical. We camped on Kubu Island, and I remember, and, and it was just one of those, how to explain it was on those extraordinary nights. You know how we look up at the stars and we see the planets, even in Johannesburg where there's a lot of pollution. We look up and we see the stars. That night on Kubu Island, in the middle of the Makati Kati pans, it was almost like a firework display. And you know what the firework display was? It was shooting stars. And I lay on my not very comfortable mattress outside my tent, and this firework display of shooting stars was going on in the sky above my head. Oh, absolutely memorable experience. So, Anyway, there are lots and lots of places to go to. As I say, you can go to the Kalahari. But let me talk a little bit about the Okavango. Because it used to be called the swamps. People used to say, I'm going to the swamps. Such a misnomer. Not swampy. What the Okavango is, it's the world's largest inland delta. So instead of rivers flowing out to the sea or out to the sea, they flow in to inland. So the Okavango River, it comes down actually from the Angolan Highlands once a year and it floods 
and then it fans out, looks just like a fan, all the tributaries on the branches of the river when you see it from the air. It sort of fans out into northwestern Botswana. And there's this wonderful, meandering, complex network of papyrus line channels. And there are pools, there are very deep still pools where crocodiles and hippos lurk and waterways, secret waterways with reeds and grasses which almost meet over uh, your head. And this watery network, it covers an area, it's big, it's big, covers more than 15,000 square kilometres. So let me give you a comparison. It's a little bit smaller than Israel or about half the size of Switzerland. So that's, that's a big, big, uh, area. So don't think of it as just swamps because it's not. It's an open, tranquil waters and wilderness. I think it's one of the last great wildernesses on earth because the only reason, the only way you can get round is by boat. Once you're on one of the small islands among those meandering waterways, you can only get everywhere by boat. What sort of boats? Well, you go by Makoro. Makoro, it's a canoe-like boat, synonymous actually with the Okavango, and it was the Bay Bushmen in Botswana who first introduced it into the Delta. They used to make their Makoro think like a long canoe, wooden canoe, with like a boatman at the back who stands and paddles you through the waterways and the uh, channels. Today, they used to make them from sausage trees. Sausage trees used to be particularly good for Makoros. But today, because of conservation, you're more likely to end up in in a fiberglass uh, Makoro than you are uh, uh, an old uh, wooden one. So there you go. You'll find yourself in a Makoro with a very skilled polar, think like a gondolier, and you sit in this little narrow canoe and you will be pulled through really a water wonderland. And it always interests me. There are huge crocodiles, huge, huge crocodiles on the banks, sunning themselves on the sandbanks. The polars, the, the local bay, usually the local bay guys who pole you, they're not a bit afraid of the crocodiles, but my word, are they wary of hippos? Are they wary of hippos? And hippos, Apparently, I've, I've never found out if this is fake news or not, but apparently hippos uh, account for more lost lives in Africa than any other animal. Um, I think that's true. I mean, I've been chased by hippos. Very, very scary uh, to be chased by uh, a hippo. Um, and of course, bird watching. If you're a bird watcher and you're one of these macaros because they're so silent, is a particular thrill. And last time I was up there, I was with a, a German couple. We were each in our own Makoro. They only take one person. And we're gliding along through the waterways. And this huge bull elephant suddenly appeared in front of 
the Macquarie's, and he wasn't bothered by us. Uh, we all froze, as you can imagine, being in a very, very small boat with a very, very large elephant in front of you. It's quite uh, scary, but again, a wonderful experience. So if you want to go, you can go to Chobe National Park, that's up in the north of Botswana, the Maremi Park, which, Maremi National Park, which you can drive to yourself if you got a four by four. You couldn't do it in a sedan, don't even think of that. Makati Kati Pans National uh, Park and the Naipan National Park. And of course, the central Kalahari Game Reserve. That's a story for another day, being in the central Kalahari where it is so dry and where the Sambushman will take you out for a walk or, oh, wonderful, wonderful place to go. So think, think Botswana maybe for a next trip because you can drive there. If you're going to do the Okavango, I suggest you go with a reputable company because you don't suddenly want to be marooned uh, on an island in the middle of the Okavango and not know where your next bit of transport is uh, coming from. So if you look at wilderness safaris or and beyond, they have lovely camps up there, lots of other, lots of other lovely camps. And campsites, absolutely, all the national parks have reasonable, um, reasonable campsites. So there you go. Think Botswana, maybe, perhaps, for one of your next trips. From the highest mountains to the bluest seas, the driest deserts to the icy poles, Kate Turkington has traveled there. And now she's inviting you to travel with her through your radio. Travels with Kate is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Cape Union Mart. Kindle your spirit of adventure. The adventure starts here, only on 101.9 High FM. Joining me now is Anton Harbour, the Caxton Professor of Journalism adjunct at the University of the Witwatersrand-Fitz. He's had a 35-career in, in journalism, and I was just reminding him, actually, before we came on air, that he was a student of mine at Vit, a tousle-headed. He still has that mop of curls after all these years. Tousle-headed student who used to sit in my study at Vitz, well, and has now... Uh, Changed, helped change the face of journalism in South Africa. And that Anton is a unsolicited testimonial, not only from me, but from lots of people. So I thought before we get to the actual travel bit and asking you about some of your favorite destinations, I'm always being pestered and I'm sure you are with certain questions. Number one, I suppose, the state of journalism in South Africa. Your views? Certainly, and uh, good morning. It's delightful to uh, be talking to my ex-teacher. My view is a mixed view. As a whole, I'm very concerned about the state of journalism because of the cutbacks, the shrinking newsrooms, um, the print media in particular, um, having had such a rough um, period of time. Um, and I think one can see that in the output. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, there are pockets, I think, of excellence. Mm -hmm. A lot of that is in um, independent standalone units. 
So what's interesting is the pockets of excellence, I think, come from organizations that are supported by generous donors, funders, foundations, philanthropists, uh, people who see the value of uh, this kind of journalism, because a lot of it is investigative journalism. Yes. That's a real strength in this country, I'm very pleased and proud to say. And we're talking about, like, Amabungani and Scorpio Daily Maverick, these these independent independent pockets, as you say. I think so. And there's uh, some in the health sector, for example. Um, so they've been popping up in different sectors. What's interesting about them is they operate outside of the conventional newsrooms. And what, Anton, what I, I was asked only this week, in fact, um, who funds them, and you've described that, uh, um, um, foundations, uh, independent donors. Then I was asked, but um, don't they influence the output? Do they influence the output? Most of these organizations have very strict rules and guidelines on who they will take money from and, and uh, what conditions they will take it under, which limits the influence. Look, any, any owner or donor indirectly or directly has influence. But I think the evidence is that foundations or individual philanthropists who support these organizations are more benign and have less influence than traditional ownership structures. Yes, yes. Um, in the commercial media. And of course, in South Africa, I, th- I think I'm right in saying, put me right if I'm not, we don't have this great divide, uh, particularly in newsprint, television, uh, radio, that, for example, is in the US. You've got, you know, the extreme right wing stuff. You've got Fox in the US. Then you've got CNN, very, uh, very pro democratic. In England, you've got Daily Telegraph, quite right wing. And then you've got the tabloids. There's, in fact, a friend of mine came home from, uh, the US, quite a well known author recently. And he said to me he was so disturbed by the divisiveness and the division in America itself. But in our press, we don't, I, th- I think I'm right in saying we don't have those marked differences, or do we? Certainly not to the extent you see it in the US and the UK, where it really is very marked. The division, the political divisions of the society and the way they're reflected in the media run very deep. And I think it's, it's become clear how problematic that mm-hmm. can be. Mm-hmm. For better or for worse, most of our media is clustered in the center mm-hmm. of the political spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, you, we could argue that the left and the right are not that well represented, but, um, that's the nature of what we have. We, uh, I, I would highlight another issue that I'm very concerned about. Yes. And that is um, newspapers and media groups that have gone rogue in the sense that they've broken with our self-regulatory system that monitors accuracy and professionalism. You know, I think that system is terribly important and I'm very concerned that there are those who've broken away from that and gone rogue. And what do you mean by going rogue? Just throwing away ethics? I mean, yes, throwing away ethics, 
um, throwing away normal verification and not subjecting themselves to the peer review system um, that we have in place through the Pro- Press Council and the Broadcast Complaints Commission. And that leads to stories like the infamous story of the decouplets, the 10 yes. fictional babies. Yes, which was shocking and shameful and made us look so bad in the eyes of the rest of the world uh, as well. And it- it damages the credibility of all our journalism, exactly. so I'm deeply concerned about it. And then, of course, the other question I'm asking, you must be asked over and over again by friends, family, peers, students, staff, why is the news so negative in South Africa? Why can't good news be published? Well, A, I would question whether good news is not published, um, um, but I'm afraid that um, things are tough in our country. Um, and that's reflected in the media. But you are pointing to something that, that does, that, that, that is worth thinking about and talking about. That is, there seems to be an inevitable tendency, um, for news to be defined as the negative. And that's because, um, uh, news outlets look for drama. Yes. They, they look for issues and problems. And, and it's much harder and conflict. Mm. Um, we know that interest in information and news is heightened by conflict. Mm. And, and, and that's a human thing. And it's particularly evident in social media where they make yes. use of that to promote yes. social media. Um, but it is, it, 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 it is a, a, something we need to be aware of and, um, concerned about. And I mean, conflict is just not the war in Ukraine. It's actually a, a cockroach in your Big Mac or or somebody <laughs> complaining about you. Or I mean, conflict comes in many shapes and sizes. No, that's true. And I think there is a tendency among groups of South Africans to revel in complaint, I must say. Um, <laughs> I thought it was only I- the Brits that did that. No, I think you see it among um, among some groups of South Africans as well. We all know that they, you know, this is a very magnificent country, wonderful, where very many brave and wonderful things happen as well. Um, but they, even though they are reported, they just don't draw the same kind exactly. of attention. Exactly. A, a bit later on in the program when I'm talking about books, uh, I've come across, I won't do it now, but a lovely little book with messages from the Dalai Lama. And he said so many good things over the years. But this is almost apropos of what you've been talking about, that don't dwell in the negative. He says, and I quote, there are only two days in the year that nothing can be done. One is called yesterday, and one mm. is called tomorrow. I love that. I Very clever. I love that. Now, uh, Anton, your travel, I mean, you're, you've travelled all over uh, the world. Do you have favourite destinations? Well, I can talk about a couple of trips I've done in my life Yes, that yes. Uh, have really made a, a big mark. You know, in fact, in, in the early 1990s, I think around about 1991, I was totally exhausted uh, by our work on the Weekly Mail and by the pressures of the time. So my family and I, my, my wife and my young son then was about two or three, 
we went and rented a house in the north of Italy, in in um, in the province of Liguria, at, at, at in a mountaintop, one of those early <laughs> 11th century mountaintop villages. This one is called Apricale. Oh, wonderful. And in fact, we rented a house that belonged to Rusty Bernstein, who was once a, uh, a Ravonia trialist in this yes, country. Yes, And was living in London, and we rented his house, and we stayed in this wonderful old Italian village where you had to park at the bottom of the hill, leave your car, because no cars were allowed into the village proper. So that made it very peaceful, very safe. And, uh, you know, at the very top of the hill... There was the the square with the with yes. the, the restaurant and the church, uh, the, t- the two great institutions of Italian life. All the children would wake up in the morning, run up to the square, and all play together. The whole village's Lovely. children were there, Lovely. and the parents yes. the parents would take turns to look after all the children. As and long I as suppose you put all, in, yeah. all the old ladies and all the old gentlemen sitting on the stone benches round the uh, square sharing the news of the day. Exactly. Eating pasta, sharing the news of the day. It was, uh, it, it was wonderful. And it was only about 20 minutes from the French border. Oh. So when we got, when we got sick of pasta and pizza, we crossed the border and had some wonderful French food. It really was a wonderful, wonderful spot. Oh, and do the kids remember it well? Well, my my, I only had one kid then, yeah. and my son was two or three. He remembers bits and bits pieces. Of it. Yes, yeah, that's right. And that's right. and the next place you said you had two particular trips you remembered. Well, I'd like to tell you a story too about a very different trip. Okay. In the late 1980s, the Canadian government used to support us a lot at the Weekly Mail. Yes. Um, and were strongly anti-censorship uh, um, and, and, and stood with us in this country. Asked me to come on a trip around Canada, visiting a lot of small towns, not the big cities, but mm-hmm. the small towns, to talk about um, South Africa and our newspaper and censorship. And it was a it was a very rare opportunity to visit a lot of places with names like Wounded Knee and Bent Elbow and those strange <laughs> Canadian towns, Saskatchewan, and um, some of them very small. And each one of them had an anti-apartheid local organisation. Goodness me, that every that's single amazing. one. That's right. And so, what would happen? is they would ask me to come and speak to them. And then, and our newspaper, the Weekly Mail, was their main source of contact with South Africa. Goodness. But what they would do is they would first go and protest at the local petrol station because, of course, uh, the petrol, the petrol companies remained in South Africa. Yes, yes. So, you know, so what would happen is they would spend two hours at minus 10 or 15 degrees in Canadian winter protesting the petrol station, then come to a discussion with me. And the first question I would ask me is, why do you carry adverts from these petrol companies? <laughs> so you explained you had to stay alive, the paper had to stay alive. Exactly, and I tried to tell them it was a sort of virtuous circle. The more they protested, the more advertising we got, the more they got our newspaper, the more they could protest. Exactly. But um, it, it, it was hard to convince them. 
but what an amazing, what an amazing thing to do. And I mean, any little town, anywhere, whether you're in the Karoo, whether you're in the middle of Patagonia or whatever you are, that's where you see real life and reality away from a lot of the rubbish we see on social media and, and in the press as well, in the print, print press. Oh, yes, you certainly get a feel for the country that's different from the one you get in Toronto or Montreal. But let me tell you another quick story, if there's yes, time. Yes, please. In Saskatchewan, um, um, I was hosted by a historian, an academic from the university there, and a historian who was involved in the anti-apartheid movement in Saskatchewan. And after, after I'd spent a few hours with him, I said to him, I can't believe how much you know about South Africa. I mean, you don't get this just from sitting here and reading. Just just how is it you have such extraordinary feeling for our country? And he said to me, do you remember the Boswell Wilkie Circus? Oh, goodness. <laughs> and the Boswell Wilkie Circus, he said, had a cowboy act from Saskatchewan um, um, which had a kid in it. It was these two, um, uh, cow, you know, it was a sort of horse and whip yes. act, you know, those yeah. old cowboy acts. Yes. And he said, my parents did the act and I was the kid in the act and I was there for 10 years. Oh, goodness me. Uh, I think some of our listeners will certainly know the Boswell with Wilkie Circus. Maybe just some of the younger ones won't, but it was, it was an institution in South Africa. Your folks took you to the circus and of course terribly unwoke because they had elephants and tigers and cowboys and Indians. I mean, that, that wouldn't happen now, but what an amazing story. Uh, that he spent 10 years doing his cowboy act in South Africa and then went back home and championed uh, at the end of a party. That's such a wonderful story. It and, is, isn't it? Uh, mm. and, and where do you want to, final question, where do you want to go to that you haven't been to? If you could name one you know, place. I would certainly, and that would be Japan. Yeah, oh, wonderful place. I, I haven't been there, and it's always interested me, and um, I love their food, which is always an important aspect, yes. as best I know it from here or elsewhere in the world. But uh, that would be, the if, if I could go anywhere tomorrow, that's where I would go. I'll come with you. I've been once, and I'd go back in a heartbeat, uh, let me tell you. And Tom, thanks so much. Uh, I've been talking to Anton Harbour, a legend in South African journalism, now prof of journalism at Fitz, was editor of the Weekly Mail. His list of awards and distinctions and fellowships would, would take us forever. And it is good to know, didn't get time to discuss it with Anton, that South Africa has one of the freest medias in Africa, we're number four. Namibia is first, Capo Verde is second, Ghana is third, we are fourth. And in a global list of free media, we sit, South Africa sits above the UK and the US. So, so we can be really proud of our media. I'll be back after the break. From the highest mountains to the bluest seas, the driest deserts to the icy poles, Kate Turkington has traveled there. 
And now she's inviting you to travel with her through your radio. Travels with Kate is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Cape Union Mart. Kindle your spirit of adventure. The adventure starts here. Only on 101.9 High FM. Welcome back. 101.9 High FM. It's Kate Turkington. We're talking travel. And talking now with Professor Anton Harbour, Prof of Journalism at Vits. He said one of the places he would love to go to is Japan. Well, some of you may remember that on last week's show, last Sunday's show, I actually talked about Japan and my visit there. An amazing place. I go back in a heartbeat. And if you would like to listen to, to it, talking about Japan, you can go on to our website, which is highfm.com. There is a podcast uh, there. That's Japan, highfm.com. And if you want to talk to me personally or suggest places or suggest people to talk to, I'm Kate at high.com. No, I'm Kate at hi.co.za. Okay, let me say that again so we've got it straight. If you want to come to the website and listen to podcasts, it's highfm.com. If you want to talk to me, it's kate at hi.co.za. And just to remind you, if you're not Jewish, hi is spelled C-H-A-I. It's the Jewish word, that lovely Jewish word for love and Light high, C H A I. Well, okay, books, books we always talk about in this segment of the program, books you travel with, books when you armchair uh, travel, maybe. And I'm never going to talk to you about books I don't like or I think are badly written or whatever. Somebody once said to me, Kate, you only talk about books or you only review books that you think are good or you've liked. I said, yes. What's the point of my wasting people's time trashing trashing a book I didn't like? Rather, let me share my enthusiasm and my love for a particular book uh, with you instead of telling you, talking about rubbish. Anyway, a lovely little book that came across my desk last week is called Heart to Heart, A Conversation on Love and Hope for Our Precious Planet. It's published by uh, Jonathan Paul, you can get hold of in South Africa, actually published by Harper uh, Collins, and it's written by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, but it's illustrated by somebody called, famous illustrator, called Patrick MacDonald. And it's just such a lovely little book. It's a little hardcover book. Every page is pictures. It's graphic with sometimes a few words of wisdom from the Dalai Lama. Uh, maybe not. would be a wonderful book to give as a gift to almost uh, anybody. And the Dalai Lama says, once compassion is developed, it naturally opens an inner door through which we can communicate with fellow human beings. And I think that's so true. Other sentient beings, he says, and with ease and heart to heart. So the drawings, the story is about a panda. Now, you know pandas are critically endangered. Those lovely black and white bears that you can see uh, in a zoo. 
It's about a bear, a panda, who comes down from the Tibetan highlands. There are so few of them left now. Most of them are in cages in zoos. And he chats, this little panda, with the Dalai Lama. And there are lovely pictures on every page. Uh, he, they talk about climate change, not in a boring um, kind of preachy way, just a chat between the panda and the Dalai Lama. And there's one particular quotation I love that the Dalai Lama says, has. He says, I quote, there are only two days in the year, I, I said this to Anton, that nothing can be done. One is called yesterday and one is called tomorrow. So lovely, lovely little pictorial book, picture book really, with some lovely thoughts by the Dalai Lama will make a gorgeous gift for almost anybody. And for a very, very different book. Well, different in a way because it's also inspiring and uplifting. And it's Michelle Obama's new book, The Light We Carry. You may remember her first book, Becoming, became a number one best, uh, global bestseller all over the world. Um, this is the third book uh, she's written. And it's really, I hate self-help books, I must tell you, um, but it is a kind of self-help book in that she gives advice, particularly to young people, on how to live their life and get ahead and deal uh, with problems. And what makes it so different from other self-help books and which makes it so totally readable, she has anecdotes of the time not only when she was growing up, when she first met Barack Obama, but when they were in the White House. Remember, he was president for eight years. And she tells us tales of her girls growing up, how worried they were about the two daughters, you know, because they always had to have bodyguards when they went to uh, school and would they ever grow up normal and how did they teach them to be independent and then she talks about her mother coming to live with her at the White House and her mother did not want to go and live at the White House thank you very much she was living very happily in her own little house where she brought Michelle and her brother up and there was no way she wanted to move into this I think 132 roomed White House in Washington, D.C. Anyway, she did. She moved in, really, to look after the girls. And she stayed with Obama and Michelle and Barack and their family for eight years. And the minute he stopped being president, she went back to her own little house again. So Michelle gives us some of her wisdom also. So she talks about self-confidence, which breed, if you've got a kind of self-confidence, it breeds calmness. It can get rid of anxiety. I think it's particularly designed for young people. And when I say young people, I'm old, so everybody's uh, young. But if you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, even early 50s, I think there's quite a lot of learn learning in this book, The Light We Carry. Uh, the blurb says she opens a frank and honest dialogue with readers, um, answering questions or considering questions many of us wrestle with. How do we build 
enduring and honest relationships? How can we discover strength and community inside our differences? What tools do we use to address self-doubt or helplessness? So all that kind of thing. I picked it up thinking, hmm, because I did enjoy her first book, Becoming, but I also enjoyed this, and I think it's a, a lovely gift again for somebody. And then finally, to some fiction. There's a British author called Richard Osman, O-S-M-A-N, Richard Osman, and he's an English television producer and an English TV host, and he decided to write a few years ago, I think only three years ago, a detective novel, a crime novel, and who were heard his detectives. Now, don't flinch when I tell you this. His detectives were four pensioners in England. Pensioners a bit with the difference. One of them was the head in her early life, in her career, of MI5, the Total Intelligence Network in the UK. One of them is a psychiatrist. One of them was uh, an activist, a political activist. And one really is just a little old lady who does knitting and whatever, but has a mind as sharp as a knife. And he wrote this book called The Thursday Murder Club, and nobody in the world thought it would sell. It became a multi-million ram bestseller because of the characters. So the first one was called The Thursday Murder Club. And the second one was called... I hadn't read, I must tell you, I hadn't even read the uh, first one before I, I read this one. The first one was called The Thursday Murder Club. The second one is called The Man Who Died Twice. I'm going back now to read the first two, but the book I'm talking about today by Richard Osman is The Bullet That Missed, published by Penguin. And if you want a book that will make you laugh, a book that also will make you think, and a book that's very, very clever, then get hold of the bullet that missed. And if you've read the reviews, my word, everybody in the world, from the Times to the New York uh, Times to the Observer to, to all the talk shows to opera, have absolutely um, flaunted these books, if that's the right word. Delightful. Richard Osman, The Bullet That Missed, if you want to change from wham-bam, thank you man, and blood and gore and people buried in the ground, but still want a good plot with wonderful characters, this is the book for you. Okay, well we've covered a lot of ground today. Uh, we've talked about Botswana and all the places you can go to there. And remember, all the national parks in Botswana do have camping uh, facilities. Obviously, you've got to take your own tents and stuff, and sometimes you get to a, a camping site and the elephants have ripped out the water uh, taps. But if you do want to walk on the wild side or drive on the wild side, then uh, whether you're in the Kalahari or whether you're on the Okavango or whether you're in Maremi or the Makati Kati Pans, really is a super, super 
place to go. Then we talked to uh, Professor Anton Harbour, talked a bit about journalism in South Africa, and we thanked we thanked ourselves that we still do have pockets of really, really good journalism in this country, which are funded independently by independent organizations. So there's no political party driving them. There's no particular point of view driving them. It's just mainly superb investigative journalism. And we wouldn't know about state capture. We wouldn't know about sabotage escalation. We wouldn't know about the killings in KZN and who's responsible for them if it wasn't for those very brave investigative uh, journalists. And then finally, uh, the books. Let me just repeat uh, the names of them. Okay. Um, Heart to Heart, that's the book about the panda and the Dalai Lama. Every page, the most beautiful, beautiful illustration, lovely book to give uh, as a gift, a nice little aphorisms to remember as well. And then Michelle Obama's new book, The Light We Carry, uh, that's published by Penguin Viking. And finally, the bullet that missed, which is the new Thursday murder club mystery. So we've covered literally and metaphorically uh, a lot of ground today. Don't forget, if you want to suggest stuff to me, kate at high.com. And if you want to get any of the previous podcasts where I've talked about everything from Japan to I can't even remember where now. So many places we've already talked about, India, Tibet, whatever. You can get the podcast on highfm.com. Well, that's all for now. Lots of love, lots of life, and lots of light. And I'll be with you again next week, Sunday at noon. Adventure. It's not some rare gene inherited by a few people. It's that human instinct to escape, explore, and discover new places and experience new things. That's why at Cape Union Mart, we strive to awaken this adventurous spirit. Because the best gifts are not things, but moments you create with people who matter. Every adventure starts with Cape Union Mart, with gifts like Salomon, the North Face, and K-Way Adventure Gear. Cape Union Mart. The adventure starts here.